Welcome to the CDC Podcast, Episode 38. I'm your host, Eric Swain, and with me this month is Assistant Professor at Louisiana Tech University and creator of History Respawn, Bob Whitaker. Hi, Eric. Thanks for having me. Great to have you on. So, what inspired you to start up the History Respawn YouTube channel? Well, it was a couple of things. The first thing is that as a history professor, I was really interested in trying to pursue ways of making history matter to a public audience, and in particular a public audience that hadn't really been approached by academic scholarship. And then on the other hand, as a gamer, I was really interested in this kind of really incredible uh, series of historically-minded video games that had started coming out, I'd say, you know, maybe mid-2000. Uh, I would clump in kind of alternative history games like Bioshock into that, but in particular I'm thinking of kind of the new wave of uh, Sid Meier games, uh, particularly uh, Civ Four, Civ Five, uh, and then also, of course, uh, Assassin's Creed. Uh, and so I wanted to kind of find a way in my career to bring the love of history, presenting history to a public audience, and then also a love of video games and bring that together. And I think I've done that a little bit with History Respond. Did you have any influences on how to set up the channel or in what direction to go? You know, my initial thought was uh, simply to just create a Let's Play channel. And my idea was uh, to have myself play a bunch of historical video games and provide the audience with my insights about that particular time period. But I found out pretty quickly that wasn't going to work because if I'm... Being honest, you know, I really only know a lot about American and British history, whereas quite a few of the games, uh, particularly in Assassin's Creed series, uh, you know, deal with all sorts of different time periods I knew nothing about. And so from a Let's Play idea, I quickly turned to changing it into a interview show, basically, where I would invite on different historians who were experts uh, in the given historical time period, and I would field them basically softball questions, or what historians would call softball questions, with the answers uh, hopefully coming out in a form that would be understandable to, you know, like an undergraduate audience. Trying to avoid really heavily theorized history, uh, which as historians is typically how we talk to each other, uh, and instead trying to find a way to, you know, make a series that's an interview show, but is one that can be followed by the average gamer. How do you choose what games to use as your jumping off point? For instance, it, some of them are rather obvious, like the Assassin's Creed series, Shogun 2, but then you have like lesser ones I wouldn't have thought of, like Diablo 3 or even Dragon Age Inquisition, The Witcher 3, that you managed to get some pretty interesting historical frameworks out of but they don't, like, have the mold of, like, a history game. Right, yeah. I mean, a part of that is simply I, these are games that I want to talk about more. Um, part of it is just these are games that are popular, and I think, you know, it's no big surprise that if you want to get a YouTube following, it helps to cover popular games, uh, regardless of what you think about them personally. But for myself, I always wanted to make the point that it wasn't just historical video games that could be analyzed by historians. Uh, you know, there's all sorts of 
kind of what you might call cultural baggage, historical cultural baggage that are are embedded in these games. And I think, uh, you know, the first time that we tried that was with uh, Diablo 3, where I had a good friend of mine, Mickey Brock, come on the show and analyze the kind of depictions of demons, demonic possession, witches, and Satanism within Diablo as a cultural historian. And for myself, that's my favorite episode, because I think it was a successful episode. It was viewed as a good episode by my audience, and it also kind of proved the point that this series could be you know, about more than simply historical video games. It could be about really any game that has any sort of kind of what you might call historical baggage. And do you find that video games are a good avenue for tangential learning? Absolutely. You know, I think a lot of my friends in academia would look on video games as, you know, something that really kind of push forwards this kind of lowbrow version of history. But I see them as excellent jumping off points. I mean, you know, when you go into a lecture hall and uh, you try to interact with the students, these are students who are not reading history books on their own. They're probably not even watching historically themed television shows or movies, uh, but they do play historical video games. And if you can, you know, present them with a video game that has a historical theme and then provide them a little bit of extra information that is accurate, I think that goes a long way. And it even works even if you're being completely critical of the game. You know, I think with a lot of this series uh, so far, uh, I would say that we've been pretty tough on a lot of the games, uh, particularly the Assassin's Creed games. And I think that the audience has responded positively to that. I think the only really negative reviews we've gotten is when we went after The Witcher 3, but uh, I'm sure as you know and as the rest of your audience knows that that game has a lot of backlash regarding the depiction of race, uh, lack of people of color, etc. You say you turn it into an interview show, and it's actually rather fascinating to get so many historians on there, and I'll ask you about that later, but one thing that stood out to me was Valiant Hearts, and it's, it's just you there. <laughs> I, I was, yeah. I'm looking at these half hours, 40 minutes, hour long episode, and then there's just this six minutes on Valiant Hearts. Yeah, so that was a trial run at kind of making a, what I would say, a historical review of a video game, you know, a video review of a particular game, and it was by far our least popular episode. Uh, and I took that pretty personally because it's just me out there, right? There's nobody else uh, to blame it on. And the response that I got from the audience was that they liked the longer videos. Uh, you know, part of the reasons why I made that Valiant Heart video was because I wanted to try to make a shorter video because I thought it would help the popularity of the series. But in fact, it backfired. The audience that I've developed really likes the long-form interview style. Uh, and I've gotten a lot of critique from the very beginning of the show in which people are saying, you know, why don't you make it an hour long? Why don't you make it an hour and a half? You know, we, we'll take as much as you can give us. Uh, we'll take as much as you can give us with these scholars, which really blew me away because, you know, as a historian, I assume that nobody really has an interest in what scholars think of this stuff. 
And, you know, when I did my first episode with uh, my friend Brian Glass about uh, Assassin's Creed 4, we thought we'd made a terrible mistake when we looked down uh, at the recording time and it was like 45 minutes. We were like, oh, God, we're just going to get bashed to death on YouTube. We're going to get the very worst comments that we can possibly get. And instead, it was overwhelmingly positive. Uh, we used to have three dislikes for that video, and now it's gone down to one dislike. Uh, so I think over time, we've changed people's minds. And you know, so the length of the videos, uh, the fact that I don't do short videos, is a direct response to the audience requests. I also think it's sort of a self-selecting process that the 40-minute uh, videos are only watched by people who would watch a 40-minute YouTube video in the first place. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah, those uh, lovable, crazy people uh, that follow my show. I guess we want to get into what is the process for creating an episode. Is like after you've chosen the game, how about do you, I guess like the first step was, do you go about looking for guests or do you put out a call or... Or how do you find who you want to talk to about a particular topic on a game? Yeah, so initially what I did was that I, I picked a selection of games. I say I would probably say our first 10 episodes is uh, simply my decision about what games to cover. Uh, and that's transitioned recently where I've opened it up to votes from uh, my patrons on Patreon. But early on, uh, it was simply my decision about what games to cover. And... From then, I went to the most difficult part of the production cycle, which is finding a guest scholar to talk about the games. Uh, so if you have any knowledge about academia, particularly the knowledge about my uh, graduate department, the history uh, department at University of Texas at Austin, uh, you'll notice that just about all of the early guests on the show went to the University of Texas as an undergraduate or got their graduate degree. Uh, from the University of Texas. So basically, they're all my friends. And the reason that is, is because, the, partly this is because I wanted to feature these scholars and their work, but also because these are the only people in academia that I could convince to be on the show. The most difficult part about this show, this series, is finding scholars willing to interact and to talk about history in the context of video games. Most of the time when I put out a call or I'm searching for a scholar uh, to do an episode, you know, it can take months, you know, and I get several no's, I get several no answers uh, from scholars. And I think this has in part a lot to do with, you know, the perception of video games uh, amongst scholars. You know, I think games criticism, particularly coming out of media studies or uh, literature, English departments, is really beginning to thrive, but among a lot of different academic groups, particularly history, um, maybe you would lump some of the other uh, social sciences into that as well, uh, there's still a very negative opinion about video games. Uh, and so uh, when it comes to creating this show, finding a scholar is the most difficult part. I'd say the easiest part after that is capturing the material for the episode, the video, and then doing the interview. But again, that work takes maybe a week, whereas finding a scholar can take upwards of three to four months. I'll end with an example. For instance, uh, Red Dead Redemption, which is an episode I did earlier this year, uh, is one that I've wanted to do since the very beginning of the show in 2013. And it's taken me since 2013 until now to find a scholar to do that episode. 
so that gives you a sense of how much resistance there is to thinking about video games as as an art form and as one that can convey historical ideas. I'm so glad it's not just me who has trouble scheduling guests. <laughs> no, no, definitely not. So you mentioned like the recording. When you're recording game footage, are you looking for anything in particular? Or does this happen before you do the actual interview or afterwards? It happens uh, before. And the reason is because most historians don't play video games. So even if I find a scholar that's willing to do the episode, to do the interview, it's not like they've got a 100% playthrough of Assassin's Creed, right? It's not like they're addicted to civilization. It's not like uh, they've played Valiant Hearts or, you know, 1979 Revolution. So in order to bridge that gap, I have to capture the footage looking for, you know, things of interest, things that I find interesting about the history that's presented in the games. And then I share that footage with the scholar in question. And typically, I load it as a private video to my own personal YouTube channel uh, and then share that link with them so that, uh, you know, it doesn't get out there in the wider world of, you know, me playing these games and being really bad at them. And so the scholar then watches the videos and then after that, we record an interview. You know, I would love to be able to do a live Let's Play with the scholars to have them kind of react to the game as I play it. But it's just not feasible. You know, it's not feasible because, uh, you know, these scholars don't actually play the games. And it's not feasible because in order to get the best scholars to talk about these games, in order to get the people who are at the top of their fields in these particular historical subjects, you've got to be able to extend your network across the entire country and uh, the entire world, if you can. So that's how the show is set up. Uh, you know, again, I think the ideal thing would be to have a live Let's Play with the historian, but I just, I don't have the time, I don't have the money, and there's just not enough scholars out there who would be able to kind of, to know video games in the way that you would need to be able to know them in order to do that. Normally, this is about when I ask, does having the video footage of the game add anything to the, I guess, critical experience? But in this case, you already have the footage lying around to get the scholar's input. Mm -hmm. So I guess yeah. it's just the easiest thing to add it to as footage to the interview. Yeah. And the thing is, is that the audience who are primarily gamers, uh, at least as far as I can tell, based on Google Analytics, the audience is primarily gamers, so they don't really need the footage. You know, a lot of them tell me that they listen to it as a podcast. Uh, and we've actually started a podcast in which we just share audio versions of the interviews. Uh, the footage is really there for people who are not in video games, uh, people who are not, don't consider themselves quote unquote gamers. And, you know, I present that video footage not just to the person who's being interviewed, but also. I encourage other academics to actually go and watch the uh, episode so they can actually see for themselves what these games are about. So for the videos, it's really for the scholars. It's really for people who are not into games. Uh, but then the interview is really for the gamers or the people who are the players. So I guess the final step, is there much post-production work to be done when you finally have all the elements together? I'd say that... Post-production usually takes about three hours, and a lot of that is kind of trying to match up 
the audio to the video segments. And I'd say when I started out, it used to take a lot longer because I was having a lot of difficulty learning how to do video editing, uh, learning how to splice together uh, different segments of audio. But now I've gotten to the point where I note down when I'm recording the interview uh, particular minute markers where I ask a question or a particular subject comes up. And I usually have video content to go along with that. So when I'm in the uh, video editing tool, all I have to do is get to a particular point in the audio uh, and then find the kind of correlating video footage to go along with that. And it's usually about the right amount of time. I would say that, you know, I think a lot of game capturers would say this. They end up capturing a lot of footage that they end up cutting. And so I always have enough video footage to go with the interview. It's just a matter of making sure that the topics that are being discussed in the interview match up with what is on the screen. Uh, and that can, take, that can take a while. That's, that's a three-hour job, I'd say, typically. That's your show in general. But has it gotten easier to approach academics now that you can like point to this is what I'm doing? Here, these are all the other people who have come on. This is the type of thing we talk about. Yeah, ab- yeah, absolutely. You know, I started this in 2013, and you know, I think at that time, you know, I'd say my fellow graduate students at UT they understood what I was trying to do, but everybody else in the department thought I was kind of crazy. But this past year, I've begun to get a little bit of traction within the wider uh, academic community in the United States at least. And in January, actually, I uh, published an article in the news magazine for the American Historical Association, which was on uh, History Respond. Uh, it was called, oh, what was the title? I think it was called Backwards Compatible, Gamers in History. And that uh, article, which went out to you know a scholarly audience, that article led to me getting a couple dozens of emails from different scholars, some of them saying that they had no idea that this show existed and they thought it was a great idea, and other than saying, you know, oh, I never thought of thinking about video games in this way. And then also in January, I was able to chair a panel at the annual meeting of the American Historical Association, uh, which is kind of like, I guess to put it for a gaming audience, the annual meeting of the AHA is kind of like the historian's version of E3. And so I had a panel at uh, the AHA that was all about thinking about using video games to teach history, to talk about history, uh, and then also potentially use video games in the classroom. Having students build video games uh, as a way to uh, write a historical narrative instead of having them write papers or write a book review, right? Having them try to design a game about history instead. And that panel went over really well. And so I think, you know, I think things are changing a little bit. I would say looking uh, overseas, looking to Europe, in Britain, uh, in Sweden, uh, in Germany, they're quite, they're quite a bit more advanced with these things, with thinking about video games in this way. But the United States, I think, is maybe finally starting to come around a little bit. In hearing this tension between academia and video games, I'm wondering 
Is there something, like, unique about the perception of video games? Because, of course, books, but movies, television shows are used all the time as jumping off points, as, like, frameworks of which to teach up people who wouldn't otherwise be interested in history. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I I think that, you know, historians, <laughs> you might think this is funny, but we say this all the time. Uh, historians uh, think in the past and... In a sense, they still think about video games in the way that I think a lot of people in the early 1990s thought about video games. You know, something that was kind of brainless activity uh, that encouraged ultraviolence. You know, you can think about the controversies surrounding things like Doom, uh, for instance, uh, in the early 1990s or the early Grand Theft Auto games. And I think that a lot of historians still have that mindset about video games, and they don't see them as potential vehicles for complicated, nuanced ideas. And I think that, you know, one of the main goals of History Respawn is to try to change their minds about that. You know, I think the show, it does kind of focus a lot on the popular titles, you know, like Assassin's Creed, but it also does analysis of, you know, things like 1979 uh, Revolution, which I think is a clear case of a game that, you know, has a very good sense of the history that it's trying to present and generally does a very good job of presenting that history in a way that I think is compelling not just to players but then also to scholars. Uh, And all of the scholars that I've introduced that game to have come away saying, wow, I had no idea that games had gotten this good or hadn't gotten to the point where they could you know, talk about the Iranian revolution, right? And all of its uh, kind of complexity. So, you know, I hope that the series works to change historians' opinions about video games. And, you know, I, I would say that this year has been kind of a positive step in that direction with the, the article in the HA and then also the panel. I've gotten a lot of positive remarks, and I hope, I hope that means it's going to be easier to find uh, scholarly guests for the show. (laughs) You mentioned earlier, like, there's a sort of a barrier between academia and the larger populace, and that you're glad that this was able to bridge that in some way. Can you, like, further talk about what you see as, like, that barrier? Because I see it too, but I see it from my end. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I would say that historians, they they've been trained to write for other historians. Um, you know, when you go through undergraduate and then graduate study in history, uh, you write a dissertation, you are writing for a very specialized audience. And particularly when you write your dissertation and then you turn that into your first book, uh, typically a monograph, uh, you're writing for an audience of maybe six people, six experts around the world who will judge your work and then fit that into the larger historical narrative, into the historiography. And it's not until very late in your career, I would say, maybe into your early 50s, mid 50s, uh, that historians would even consider uh, writing for a popular audience. And there's some good reasons behind this. I think that history is very strong when it comes to disciplinary traditions. So, and some of these traditions are very worthwhile, you know, getting a good sense of the historiography of all the literature that's been written on your subject since that event occurred. And that gives historians 
a wide breadth of knowledge. It gives them very deep knowledge. But when you go through that rigorous disciplinary process, you often come out as somebody who cannot relate to the common man, right? You can only relate to other historians who have been through the exact same process you've been through. And to a large extent, that means that when historians write for a public audience, when they write for a popular audience, they often do so kind of against the wishes of the wider academic audience. You know, most academics, I would say, the academic community would kind of snub their noses at people who write popular histories, who write for the public. They see this as somehow degrading, kind of ruining the purity of historical knowledge, of historical analysis, of theory-based history, and kind of dumbing it down for the common person. So there's this very negative connotation with trying to reach out to a public audience, particularly if you are a junior scholar, somebody who is an assistant professor. So somebody who is just out of graduate school, late 20s, into their 30s, late 30s. So, you know, it's typically the reserve of older scholars to write popular histories, and they can get away with it usually because they're full professors, because there's nobody who's going to be able to tell them what they can and can't do. But the thing is, is that those scholars often don't really know what is compelling to the wider audience. And I think that, you know, the video game audience, gamers, uh, video game players, whatever you want to call them, that's an audience that I think historians really need to try to reach out to because it's one that is underserviced by scholarship. I didn't know how much I was interested in history until like until these popular or populist style readings and I, I don't know the words properly where I can get like it outside of the classroom because I guess you could say the classroom kind of killed the thirst for that knowledge mm. or desire for it because its presentation is always for the test and then when you get to college it's for I guess that academia mindset, but, and yours is one channel I've mentioned, uh, the extra history feature from extra credits is another yes. one that, that formulates it into a story, uh, historical events into a story mentality, which is much easier to digest. Yes. For, uh, the academics do you have on, do you have like a challenge in trying to get them to speak to a popular audience or does it just happens by the virtue it's conversational? You know, I think having a conversational helps because when academics are writing, typically they're writing also with all of their notes and all of their archival notes and documents and pictures with them. So they tend to write in a very stilted manner because a lot of it is direct quotes. A lot of it is uh, teasing analysis from a few lines of archival text. But when they're in an interview situation, they can't rely on those notes. They, they come in with the knowledge that they have. But in many cases, that knowledge that they have is pretty vast and very deep. And, you know, I think I've managed to pick guests so far who are pretty good conversationalists and pretty good lecturers as well. You know, I think when we think about the way history is taught typically in the lecture style, that's something that a lot of my uh, colleagues, particularly people of my age group, are beginning to move away from because 
we had that same experience uh, that you had, you know, where you kind of turned off by history in the college classroom. And I see history respond as a way to kind of, you know, get away from that cycle. I think, you know, like he mentioned, uh, extra history is another great example of how that might be done. And, you know, in addition to history respond, there's a lot of scholars of my age group who have begun to broadcast historical narratives uh, through podcasts. There's dozens of great examples of historians who run uh, really successful popular history podcasts. And it's really incredible to see that transition. But I think, you know, what's going on behind the scenes with historians isn't really, it's a really public knowledge uh, unless you follow it closely. Yeah, and that locked away knowledge is more of a separation between the public and, and I guess, academia that just broadens the gulf. Yes, yeah, and there's still a very much a stigma, like I said earlier, of historians trying to present that complicated knowledge to the public. You know, there's a feeling that if you try to package it for the public that you'll ruin your analysis, that you'll... Uh, ruin your ability to know the historical truth because you're spending so much time dumbing it down for the audience. But uh, that's not my perspective. You know, from my perspective, any knowledge that you can't share is knowledge that's wasted. And the thought of spending my life writing monographs that you know are read by six or seven people really intensely. It's just not that appealing to me. And I think in order for history to survive as a discipline, in order for it to have meaning in people's lives, we need to do a better job of reaching out to that public. I'm looking through your video titles here, and I noticed one that wasn't like the others. Because in most cases, just History Respawn colon the title of the video game. But in this one, you have History Respawn, Bioshock Infinite, and The Boxer Uprising. <laughs> like, yeah. You had a very specific goal or focus for this one video, which it means you can go back to Bioshock Infinite if you ever decide to focus on something else. Do you ever leave that idea open that you can go back to one of these games you've already covered with a different scholar in covering a different aspect of its historical importance? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that was the idea of my kind of uh, partner on the series, John Arney. And he wanted to cover Bioshock Infinite. And when he said that, I was like, oh, okay, great. You know, we'll do something about, you know, American exceptionalism. We'll talk about American religion at the turn of the century, et cetera, et cetera. And he was like, well, you know, I was really interested by how they depicted the Boxer Rebellion. And I was like, okay, I, I, I'm not sure how this is going to work. And then he, you know, he was like, oh, I, I think I could make it work. I've got a really good scholar to do the episode. And so I was like, okay, go ahead and give it a try. And I think the episode turned out really well, uh, even though it only talks about, you know, a, kind of a topic that is referenced in the game for maybe 10 minutes, you know, at most. And, uh, you know, I think... Like you said, it opens the door to thinking about the game in multiple lights, not just in what I was thinking of. You know, it was also uh, a game that could be talked about in terms of just the Boxer Rebellion. You could talk about it in terms of just uh, Wounded Knee. Uh, you could talk about it just in terms of religion. So I think that was an important episode because it really opened the door to going back to different games and bringing on a different scholar who could 
maybe elucidate or kind of reveal different parts of history that we didn't get to in the initial run through, uh, which is, you know, what history is all about. Uh, historians do that all the time where they go back to an old uh, primary source uh, and they use new techniques or a different perspective to reread those sources and provide new analysis. So uh, I think that this, this is a good sign, not just for the show, but also for video games, that video games can be dealt with in the same way that we look at uh, traditional texts, that they can be analyzed from many different perspectives and not just the most obvious ones. I find it fascinating some of your word choices and how they differ from that of an English major like myself. <laughs> you, you went with perspectives where no English major would have hesitated to use lenses. Uh, yes, well, <laughs> the thing about lenses is that there was a very big lens fad in history during the late 80s going through, I'd say, maybe 2000, 2001. And now to use it is really to just mark yourself out as somebody who is living in the past. I mean, just, oh, I mean, just the worst sort of abuse of language, just the worst cliche of academia, at least from a historian's perspective. I don't know how English majors look at it, but... You know, if you're my my favorite thing is when somebody uses the phrase uh, "lens through which," and I've long contemplated creating a satirical blog about bad historical writing uh, that's called "Lens Through Which on Rye," uh, trying to make it like a sandwich, a really terrible sandwich that tastes awful, and just profiling some really bad writing from recent times. All right, I, I took a note down here from way back when we were talking about your Valiant Hearts review, because I listened to it, and you brought up a lot of points that a lot of critics had brought up, but then you pointed out how Franco-centric it was. And while, and I'm on a podcast, and we did a deep, like, critical dive into it, and it says, well, we noted how very Western Front-centric it is, we didn't note, we didn't, because I guess, like, you had, you had Belgians, you had British, you had Americans, you had German characters that we didn't notice how France-centric it was, despite it being a Ubisoft game. Mm -hmm. So that was just an interesting point you brought up, and how it sort of disavows much of the rest of the world, like most popular media about the First World War. I couldn't help but uh, note down, Battlefield 1, question mark? <laughs> yeah, so... You know, Battlefield 1 is one of those games where, you know, it's a clear sign that history is really popular, at least as window dressing for games. And uh, even though I think, you know, a lot of critics are right in critiquing the trailers for that game as being a game that looks like it's just going to be about window dressing for the First World War, I I tend to be positive about Battlefield 1 because I think it's going to open up a larger audience to thinking about the First World War in different ways. You know, I think when that trailer came out, there was a lot of criticism about how it portrayed the war as kind of this gung-ho, almost heroic conflict, whereas, you know, most people have been taught that, you know, the First World War was about uh, the tragedy of the Western fronts, uh, the poppy fields, uh, the, you know, the trenches, the disease the slaughter uh, at Verdun and the Somme. But from my perspective, I would say that it's a game that offers a lot of, you know, kind of avenues to talking about the First World War more accurately than is typically done 
in a lot of popular analysis. So, for instance, it has battlefronts or battlefields in many different parts of the world, not just the Western Front. You know, the playable characters include non-white people, uh, which is not common for First World War games. And then finally, you know, when we're thinking about the First World War, people who fought in the First World War, they thought it was heroic. The people who were supporting the war behind the front lines, they thought they were fighting in a righteous cause. So I think when people critique this game for being pro-war, for being, for presenting the war as heroic, and, you know, holding up instead these kind of great uh, examples of cultural critiques of the war, like uh, Black Adder Goes Forth and whatnot, I think that people don't realize that contemporaries, people who lived through the war, will probably have more to like about Battlefield 1 than they would have about, you know, the war novels, about All Quiet on the Western Front or Black Adder Goes Forth. Uh, so I'm excited about Battlefield 1. I can't really say I'm a huge Battlefield fan, but I am really interested to see what kind of conversations come out of this. I was going to bring that up, that we have confirmed the Harlem Hellfighters and a Bedouin woman on the Turkish front. Yes, uh, although I would be remiss in, if I didn't note that uh, France, the, uh, that France is a playable character group in that game, is a DLC. It's not included <laughs> in the game. <laughs> OEA. OEA, that's right. Are there any other interesting moments or notable ideas that have come up through various episodes? You know, I think... I've been really impressed by what the scholars that I brought on have brought to the table. I think recently I did an episode about Uncharted 4, and I had a friend from uh, UT Austin, Chris Haney, who's now starting up as an assistant professor of Latin American history at Penn State. I had him come on the show, and I was he had written a book about this kind of Indiana Jones character who had... Uh, done the first uh, photographs and exploration of uh, Machu Picchu in Peru. And I expected the whole episode to be about that. But then at the end, when I showed him the footage before our interview, he got really interested in talking about the mummies. Uh, so if you, if you haven't played Uncharted 4, there's a sequence near the end where you run into some mummies. And he just went off on this long explanation about the history of mummies and, you know, what they mean and how different uh, tombs are set up and how they include mummies and how they use skulls and whatnot. And I was just so incredibly impressed by that. And that was a conversation that, you know, didn't go in ways that I expected, but it turned out to be, I think, a really, really good episode. And then in addition to that, I mean, I was... Just really excited to see how much the audience really enjoys hearing from scholars and how much they want to have longer videos. That's what keeps surprising me. I mean, again, when I started, you know, I, I was aware of Let's Play videos. You know, I, I would watch PewDiePie and I would say, okay, well, this is how you do it. You keep it to under 15 minutes, maybe even under 10 or 8 minutes if you can. You are loud, you're bombastic, and you do a Let's Play. And I was like, okay, that's what a successful video is. And then I started doing these interviews, and I was like, oh, gosh, nobody's going to like these. you know. And I can't say History Respawn is the most popular show out there, but 
it does have a loyal audience and that audience really, really loves these long form videos. And I still don't understand why, uh, but I am really excited with the results. So have you assigned any of your students to be watching these videos? Yes, actually, I uh, have assigned several of the videos uh, for U.S. history survey classes that I've taught. And I've had several friends, actually, who uh, have started recommending the videos for, you know, history classes dealing with the slave trade. Uh, I know a good friend who uses it for uh, a history of Eastern Europe class. They, they like to use the Papers, Please video. And I've got, I've got friends who use the videos on uh, Assassin's Creed to talk about uh, the age of piracy during the 18th century. Uh, and I'm, in fact, uh, in the process now of uh, planning a class for the fall, uh, which is going to be called uh, History Through Video Games. Uh, and in that class, I'm going to make some of the videos the basis for class discussion. This is a smaller seminar class, so less than 20 students. And make those videos the basis for discussion and see what the students you know, find useful about the video and maybe use some of their critiques to form the basis for future videos in the series. I noticed that a few of these videos are actually Let's Plays. Some of them actually quite extensive. Was that a, a different format you were trying? Yeah, I wanted to kind of get back to trying to do a Let's Play. And we did, uh, John and I, John Harney and I, did our first Let's Play which was uh, on Twitch with, uh, I think it was Assassin's Creed Chronicles, uh, the the one set in China. Uh, and then from there, I started doing some more broadcasting, and I've been using YouTube. And I think John has been using Twitch for his Let's Plays of Civ. And we just wanted to try it out. We thought that you know maybe there was a different audience that we hadn't been reaching with the videos, with the long-form videos, and so we thought that we might try to do a true Let's Play. The problem with Let's Play, of course, uh, is that you know, you've got to find time to do it. You've got to get you know, kind of the right game uh, that you can talk about. Uh, you know, for myself, I'm an expert on American and British history in the 19th and 20th centuries, and John is an expert on East Asian history in the modern period. And so... You know, that sounds like a long time period to cover, but really when it comes to video games, there's not that many options that we can do a Let's Play on our own. You know, we could sit there and we could talk about all sorts of different histories, you know, uh, different time periods, but a part of the purpose of the show is to provide the audience with the best possible scholarship available. And, I, you know, I feel like I'd be doing the audience a disservice if I was up there talking about you know, the history of, um, you know, South Africa in the 18th century, you know, something I don't really know anything about. I would rather have uh, an interview with an expert on that field. But with that said, I mean, I think the Let's Plays are things that we're going to keep trying in the future. And uh, in particular, I'm really excited about doing a series on Mafia 3, which is set uh, in uh, 1960s New Orleans which as a professor at Louisiana Tech, I know quite a bit about, and I'm hoping that I can get a scholar uh, from New Orleans to sit in uh, and do a Let's Play video with me 
uh, we'll see what happens when that game, I think it comes out in, I think it's mid-October. We'll see what happens when that comes around. Do you have any other further plans in the future for History Respawn? I think, you know, just trying to to build the audience. I mean, I think that there's a great lineup of historically themed games coming out this fall uh, that'll help, you know, and uh, it really, uh, again, I can't stress it enough. It really helps to cover the most popular games if you're trying to build the audience. You know, I, I once thought that, oh, well, if you produce great content on an obscure game, people still watch it. That's not really the case. And But there's a great lineup coming out. Um, Battlefield 1, Mafia 3, Civ 6 is coming out sometime this fall. There's not a new Assassin's Creed game, but that might actually be a good thing. And we've been in talks, uh, John and myself, we talked about maybe doing a kind of critique of the Assassin's Creed movie, uh, which I think is slated to come out sometime around Christmas. Uh, so we might we might delve into doing some films, also a video uh, game film based on on history. <laughs> yes, that's right. And then you know I think we would like to do more podcasts. Uh, those uh, we've just started this summer, and they've been doing pretty well. I've been surprised, and I'd like to use that as another avenue, not just to share the audio versions of the YouTube videos, but also to do some discussion episodes uh, with other scholars and just kind of talk about video games through a historical lens, if you will, in kind of a kind of a more laid back approach, something that's not so stilted as the interview format. So there there is additional material in the History Respawn podcast feed or will be? Yes. So the main purpose of the podcast is to share the unedited versions of the YouTube audio. So with the YouTube videos going forward, they're typically going to be about 25, 30 minutes long, whereas most of the interviews, when I record them, are about an hour long. So if you listen to the podcast, uh, which is available on SoundCloud and iTunes, you will get the full interview and not something that's edited. I'm trying to think if there's anything else I should ask before I have to say goodbye because I won't get you back. But <laughs> is there anything else you wish to say about history respawned? No, I mean I just I would you know invite people if uh, the series is new to them to go and check it out and to send me your feedback to send me your criticism. I again I am a historian by trade. I have played a lot of video games, but there's always new games that I haven't heard about that might make good material for the show. And I would say also that, you know, if they've got criticism about how the show is produced, you know, any advice they want to give me, technical or otherwise, please just write me an email. My email address is whitakerbob at gmail.com. I really, really could use the help. Again, I, I'm used to used to writing history, not necessarily producing YouTube videos. I guess that just leaves the final question. What is your favorite video game of all time? Uh, my favorite video game of all time is Mass Effect 2. I think that game, just from start to finish, is absolutely fantastic. I'm a huge nut for uh, sci-fi, uh, particularly you know original sci-fi, and 
the Mass Effect series from beginning to end, I think it's probably my favorite series, but Mass Effect 2 in particular. Uh, just the beginning, going through meeting the elusive man, forming the team, you know, doing the suicide mission. It's just such great theater and just so much fun to play and so many memorable characters. And I just couldn't recommend that game highly enough. I'm not entirely sure so someone else would have to go through like the Bats couple of podcasts, but I think that's the first repeat on favorite game of all time. No had. kidding. I'm not oh. sure if someone would have, someone else would have to check because I'm certainly not going to. So I guess for the closeout, tell the people who you are and, and where they can find you and where they can support you. Yeah, I'm Bob Whitaker, assistant professor of history at Louisiana Tech University. I run uh, History Respond, a YouTube series. You can find that on YouTube. We've also got a website, historyrespond.com. We've just recently branched out and started a podcast, the History Respond podcast, which is on SoundCloud and iTunes. I think it's also on Google Play, actually. And you can find more about me at Louisiana Tech's website or on my academia.edu page. Uh, and I'm on Twitter, at Whitaker Almanac, and also at History Respawn. Patreon. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> History Respawn is also on Patreon. Uh, if you go to patreon.com uh, forward slash History Respawn, uh, you'll find us there. And there's several different tiers. And obviously, I, I need a tier to encourage me to do more self-promotion. I'm not not used to the whole the Patreon game yet. And for us at Critical Distance, we also have a Patreon at patreon.com slash critdistance. If you could take a look and support us there, we'd be much appreciated. If you can't, share the link because all the work we do is supported by you, the audience. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes. Every little bit helps, and I desperately like reading reviews, as few of them as we get. Thank you, Bob, for coming on. I hope you have a great evening. Thanks. You too, Eric. It's been a blast.